Hi everyone and welcome back to Discerning Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host Ant and you join me today for episode number 137 which is part two of a two-parter um, in which I'm looking at what it means to be a spiritual seeker. Obviously a huge and fascinating subject area. So part one I basically was just looking at some of the defining characteristics of what it means to be a spiritual seeker and in this follow-up part, part two, I'm going to um, initially look at some of the challenges and difficulties facing the spiritual seeker or the seeker if you prefer and um, in the second in the second part of this particular episode I'm going to share um, a chapter from, from an amazing book called Butterflies Are Free to Fly by Stephen Davis and I think that's um, essential reading um, for any for any seeker really anyway more about that um, later in today's episode so I think um, first of all of course one of the most um, challenging things facing a seeker is the whole paradoxical nature of the journey because at the outset we have this there is this um, motivation this constant striving to elevate our consciousness in order for us to integrate uh, deeper awareness of self and, and others and um, course along the way we gain better understandings of specific spiritual teachings or set of spiritual or esoteric principles if you like and it often feels like we're on this sort of quest or the grand journey of course it speaks to the hero's journey as I've spoken about before and there's this sort of this dimension to which we're reaching outwards towards some kind of destination and this is a sort of paradoxical element. All, all the while, we have this sort of uh, sense that we know, really, that all the striving is, is completely pointless. Because as many people have said, down the eons, down the ages, uh, many great people, many great thinkers and philosophers and writers have said, and esotericists, um, we already fully em embody everything that we keep striving for it's already within us and it already has been but of course we have to we have to take action we have to go out into the world we have to uh, endure all the slings and arrows so to speak in order to to come to come to this awareness that we've in we've <laughs> we've embodied it uh, embodied this sort of wisdom all along and I think the sort of that awareness comes, um, I think it comes naturally to a seeker when, when we're ready. Because um, as I was saying, all the, all the striving, um, all the striving in the world counts for absolutely nothing. And this sort of natural wisdom or awareness of self and our place in the universe, if you want to put it like that, that awareness rises up or bubbles up to the surface, if you like, when, when we're ready. And the way I look at it is because this sort of idea of wisdom around self and others, it's um, it's very, very powerful stuff. And these insights are very, very powerful. So in the hands of manipulative people, shall we say, or people who are just unaware of what they're doing, they might not they might not have uh, ill intent. They might just be ignorant as to the power of this knowledge and understand these understandings, sorry. I think 
it's kind of like what the universe has built in, if you want to describe it as that, or divine power, or divine essence, or God, or however you want to describe it, has designed <laughs> the grand design, if you like. There's like a fa I call it a fail-safe me mechanism. In other words, um, it's there to ensure good stewardship of ancient wisdom and knowledge. It isn't available to just anyone. So these um this awareness um that we have suddenly of just how powerful we are um, we kind of radiate this sort of um energy and if i want to put it in a very 3d sense is what will kind of be the essence of charisma we we naturally begin to draw people towards us who help us on our journey and it's a very powerful thing but i believe that that only happens when we're ready when we've gone through certain trials and and tribulations and and we've proven ourselves to have some sort of moral compass i think it naturally um arises and and again this speaks to this idea of the frustrations of being a spiritual seeker because it isn't just about reaching out into the world and and being very diligent and doing all your learning and doing all your spiritual practices there's so much more to more to that and if the seeker isn't ready then really it's not this sort of ancient knowledge and wisdom what we're all seeking for isn't going to come it isn't going to come forward because in the wrong hands as we know it could create havoc <laughs> so that's i think one of the one of the main challenges and difficulties is that sense of frustration that many seekers many of us i'm sure have felt on many occasions um also i think um this is something else that i've struggled with whenever whatever sort of knowledge we feel we've gained or insights or kind of personal achievements in the world of spiritualism or spiritual understandings, it still doesn't protect us from the randomness of existence. And a phrase I like to use, you know, we can be literally thrown to the wind at any time and lose it all in a flash. It's all gone. <laughs> so I think like a truly awakened individual on the path is becomes aware of this over time and learns to sort of accommodate this kind of understanding and fully embrace it and furthermore I believe they become willing um, they have a willingness to, to, to give up everything that they've um, gained if you will and start completely anew afresh because I feel like a lot of life um, the teachings within sort of self-help and self-help gurus it's all about optimizing our lives in a certain way and we feel at certain points that we're really flying we've got all those spates that all those sorry all those plates spinning but really a true seeker or someone really seeking enlightenment should comes to the realization eventually as much as those elements are important to maintain you know good mental health and and to, to keep us on the straight and narrow they aren't it they aren't they aren't what the journey um is really is really about so we may well have a business that, that succeeds in our careers and interpersonal relationships may be thriving and really, really given true expression to who and what we are. But at the same time, we have to realise that they are kind of important, but they aren't as well. And it's back to what I'm talking about, what I've been talking about, is this idea of the paradoxical nature of being a seeker. I just want to talk briefly now, um, just to give sort of, to flesh this out a little bit, a little bit, um, this idea of what it means to fully embrace 
living life completely free, free of no attachments and being able to embrace um, living life constantly in the knowledge that it could all just basically go to shit and it could all um, collapse in on itself. I think that really speaks to a strong character uh, who who is able to sort of embrace that. I think in a very 3D sense, it's it's the epitome of what has been described as a Renaissance man or a Renaissance woman. They have sort of many different aspects to their being and they've sort of done and embraced many different things in their life and they've always managed to um, overcome uh, adversity, so to speak. So I'm just going to... Um, speak with reference to uh, a really amazing guy and I first became uh, aware of him in the UK we have a program um, on terrestrial TV actually called New Lives in the Wild it's presented by a chap called Ben Fogel and he talks about uh, people from all over the world who've left normal TikTok day-to-day urban life and gone out into the wilds gone off grid so to speak and made a completely new life to themselves sorry a new life for themselves and recently on this show a few months ago um ben met up with this guy uh, american guy called mike bassich now for those of you who who uh, aren't aware of who he who he is i wasn't um at the time he's a former champion snowboarder he was actually i believe he got to number two in the world at a very young age ridiculously young age something like about 19 or, or 20 and he lives in the Sierra Nevada uh, mountains in an area called the Tahoe National Forest. And it follows his story in this show, New Lives in the World. It follows his story of how he first got into snowboarding and uh, when he became professional and um, he travelled the world. And it was really a kind of like amazing life that he had. And then all of a sudden, he basically he gave it up at a quite a young age, actually. And he decided to, you know, follow his uh, his other passions in life, so to speak. And he did. He literally, like Renaissance men and women do, he completely started all over again. And it took him seven years to build his cabin in the Tahoe National Forest up there in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, and it's amazing structure. They showed it on the show. It's made of uh, from stone, and it's. Um, made from 170 tons of, of stone. And throughout the show, um, the host, there were these kind of like real touching moments when he was speaking to Mike Basich. And he was, you know, Mike was saying how um, he's always strive, he's always, it's always been for him about personal freedom from a, from a young age. That was um, what he's striven, striven for. And what was interesting was, again, was, I was talking about this in, introduction to part one was at no point was there the word spiritual used or you know um, higher teachings or any of the kind of buzzwords that we get used to but I think Mike Bassich is a really good example of someone that's deeply spiritual and is really walking the path with just amazing earnestness and great sincerity now um, I don't know if any of you guys listening know Mike Bassich but um I don't know if he describes himself um, as a, a spiritual guy or as a spiritual entity. And some of the things he said really kind of speak to what I'm talking about in these two episodes of what it means to be a spiritual seeker, 
um, and I quote him, he said, uh, life is not designed to be easy, nothing is guaranteed and, and nothing is, is forever. And of course, we know those are all eternal truths and kind of like um, speaks to a profound wisdom of a deeply soulful man. And it was really delightful to see such a, such, such a sincere person with his um, lovely kids and, and wife, someone really living in their true essence of, of who, who and what they are. But anyway, just speaking to this idea of someone who has lost it all and then has to rebuild. So at one point in the hour long show, uh, Ben Fogel, the host, when he was talking to um, Mike, Mike Bassett, he was talking about two particular incidents that he'd been to, two huge fires, one of which um, destroyed his workshop in the local town. The name escapes me, forgive me. And it was um, completely destroyed. So this was his workshop. Um, it had all of his work, all of his wood and all of his um, technical gear there. 90% destroyed. And then also he was building a homestead um, for his family, for his wife and his two lovely boys. Uh, obviously because it's quite hospitable. can be quite hospitable living up in the Nevada mountains. Um, so... There was another fire at his homestead and all his possessions, all his all his boards, all his snowboards and everything, all his memorabilia, all completely destroyed. So this poor guy, he lost he lost everything. He lost it all. And he had to all he had to start all over again. And what struck me as how was the profundity of this man was how um, he he was he didn't appear to be angry or resentful. I mean, he might have been obviously in the initial days and hours after these two huge fires took place. But he he just seemed to have this sort of serenity and grace, which I think is really important to embody, uh, I think, a real sincere, it's what a real sincere, grounded spiritual seeker um, does, does embody. And it just it reminds us, again, it's important for me to reiterate this point of, you know, there might be people out there in society who have no interest in spiritualism, no interest in uh, esoteric spiritual practice, no interest in meditation, no interest in, in any of that kind of thing. But they may they may well be walking the path. I mean, who knows? Um, and that's why, as I was saying at the beginning of uh, part one, it's important not to get obsessed with spiritual um, labels because some of the most spiritual, in inadvertent commas, people I've ever met, have no interest in such discussions or concepts, but they are, they live in true to themselves. They have really good, really good hearts. They're honest, they're sincere people. And, um, you know, I don't think we should, I think it's, it's very important not to add to the po polarization of the, at this time to say, well, they're not spiritual because they're not part of a mystery sport school or they're not, they're not part of, um, you know, a spiritual group and they don't do spiritual practices. I think it's, important to, to always remember that so yeah check out mike basich his surname spelled b-a-s-i-c-h a really amazing guy and um an amazing story and if any of you guys listening out there who happen to live in that part of uh, the united states yeah maybe you could uh, go and speak to him because he's a he's a truly uh, inspirational uh, man and i've watched the show a few times and it's actually brought me to tears because you can just see in his eyes 
this the sincerity of him and i'd say yeah he's definitely a very very uh, sincere and and uh, grounded um um seeker for sure let's um just moving on here um sort of looking at this idea of um something else which i think many of us have faced i know from myself from a very young age as a child and then going into teenage years and many of us i i think as seekers as spiritual seekers struggle with is this concept of authenticity i mean it's so important for us who are walking the path to be authentic and it's as i say an important motivating factor for many of us uh, the pain of living an inauthentic life can feel overwhelming at times and there's this very strong desire to give expression to our individual uniqueness as individuals uh, but at the same time it can feel very challenging to find a tangible outlet for that and I know there's this sort of common phenomena whereby certainly in kind of like today's economy it, it can be difficult to find um spiritual shall we say or, or soulful or work or a business idea or venture that can be um i think that's something that many of us um many of us struggle with from my own perspective i felt i've always had a sense of having so much to give to the world but lacked a sort of an, an outlet a tangible outlet and this has caused me a great deal of personal suffering and just real frustration not from an arrogant sense in which i'm going to change the world but when you have this deep yearning, you just feel it inside you. Um, it can be very frustration, frustrating. Sorry, when you can't, um, when you can't um, give true expression to it. And um, I guess another way of putting it is that uh, at times I feel a very clear disconnect between my personal inner knowing and the way I actually live and express myself in the world, and that's the. Uh, that's something that I've had to grapple with uh, for many years and what also compounds this is the sense of um, being inauthentic is is how to deal with day-to-day -day life whilst leaving the safety of, of the her of of the herd so to speak and normal day-to-day -day TikTok society it's it's how to um, I guess what I'm saying is is that difficulty of feeling like you're being authentic when you've just got a very shall we say normal job nine to five as i was talking about before in part one that difficulty of being around people who have no interest in your spiritual leaning shall i say shall i say or uh yearnings it, it, it's it's difficult to be authentic i guess that's what i'm saying difficult to be authentic in that kind of um in that kind of setting and as i was saying yeah in the first part there's one school of thought where you need to embrace that you need to embrace being with people who might disagree with you because there's a lot of growth in that. And the second school of thought, which I'm going to talk about today in part two, that's kind of like is about trying to extricate yourselves from mainstream society, which normally involves having to adopt a completely new set of norms, breaking free from the restrictions of mainstream society, and this in in itself can be just as painful as, stay, as staying within mainstream society, because we very often have a little choice but to um, but to remain within uh, a community that routinely is happy to comply with many life limiting norms and expectations. So in this school of thought, at least, 
there's this idea of building a bridge or a gap, so to speak. Um, build a bridge, building a bridge out of the system towards greater freedom and greater self-reliance. And this is an important question that uh, many seekers have to grapple with. I mean, how do you do this? Is it possible? If you have, um, if you're busy at your nine to five job, you have kids or you have other responsibility, responsibilities, many, oftentimes it just isn't possible to build this bridge out of the system. So we have to do the best that we can. But also perhaps this is a rather binary and limiting perception, creating ongoing polarizations, thereby adding to the problem because there is no right or wrong way to approach this. And we, if we become a little bit obsessed with, I need to escape the system. And I think this sort of speaks to another problem. Uh, I don't want to go into too much depth, literally because of lack of time. Um, but this idea of uh, idealization or perfectionism, I should say, yeah, that's the word where we're on our path, we're on our spiritual journey, we're seeking and it can lead to um, sort of perfectionism uh, and that can be quite difficult um, because we, you know, we don't just, we create a barrier to embracing everything in life. Um, that's something else to to look out for. But I'm sure there are people who set out to leave the system as well. This is another problem and enjoying spiritual or, or intentional communities but find themselves stuck in a very, very similar situation that they found themselves in mainstream society because they haven't done this inner work on, a, on any great sincere level. And uh, personally, I've tripped myself up in the past when I felt the need to escape from something. And it's always kind of like a rather uh, big red, red flag um, that we uh, actually need uh, to, um, to look out for. I guess also on this idea of um, some of the challenges we might face is when one is seeking transcendence, which um, one could also look at as the ultimate experience of being here on the 3D. It is very, it is very rare. Um, and of course, once we have that taste of the sweet elixir of a transcendent experience, in whatever form it, it might have, it might be whilst making love to our beautiful lover, it could be we have this transcendent experience whilst reading a book as the sun shines on our face. It could be that we're in the park and we're, uh, you know, playing with our dog or our young children. This sort of transcendent experience can come upon us um, at any moment. And it's so juicy. It's so delicious. It's so amazing that um, it can become quite addictive. And it's like, how do I get this experience back? And that can become a very seductive form of addiction for for many um for many uh seekers out there so in most cases as many mystics know only too well from personal experience the path to a deeper understanding of self is by its nature extremely tor tortuous and traumatic and it's not uncommon to experience a deep sense of despair and helplessness and hopelessness and helplessness perhaps and as I spoke about again in a previous episode uh, in which I talked about the dark night of the soul, speaking to this, of course. But back to the completely paradoxical nature of the journey facing the spiritual seeker. Ultimately, um, as we know, our life isn't just about us and it's my journey, God damn it. It's not simply about satisfying our egoic desires and wishes. And it's 
This brings to mind this well-worn phrase again that we're all familiar with. It's part of the journey of the spiritual seeker is about being open to die to oneself. That's what we know it isn't really about ourself. And that's a very, very difficult um, concept to, to really, truly, fully, fully embrace. And this is this idea of what I've been speaking about, how we have to be open to completely losing everything because it's we get all our ducks in, in the row and often uh, what will happen <laughs> um, just when we think we know everything about ourselves, we've got everything tidy and cushy about our life, then everything is kind of like a universal principle. Then everything um, that isn't actually uh, us will show up in our life and kind of like the universe, the divine or God or however you want to describe it says to us, look, this isn't about this isn't about you. So look, now I'm. I'm actually presenting you with more evidence in your actual life to show you, look, this isn't just about you and getting everything lined up. And that can be that can be where um, it feels like a game of snakes and ladders. We feel like we're we feel like we're riding up the ladders and then we hit one of the stakes and woo, we go right back to the beginning again. And that's what brings us back to being um, modesty, you know, having modesty. And it brings us so we don't become you know, like some sort of spiritual tyrant, you know, it's, uh, again, it's all in order to, to ensure that we do, you know, we don't get uh, beyond ourselves and we realise there's a much bigger story, there's a much bigger story going on. I just want to move on now in terms of some of the difficulties and challenges that we face as a spiritual seeker. Talk a little bit about um spiritual materialism which really comes under the idea of spiritual bypassing i don't want to get too much into spiritual bypassing because i have spoken about it before with my co-host at the time mike mike lyons we we did a really good episode on spiritual bypassing can't remember the number it's quite a while ago now but do do check that out so and we just look into the definition of it and we give some quite a few examples so that's something worth checking out from my back catalogue. So really spiritual materialism is uh, kind of like another way of saying it in effect is it's a sort of form of spiritual entertainment as a as a way of avoiding genuine self inquiring inquiry. Sorry. And it's about challenging our fears and self limiting self perception because it can be very easy to fool ourselves that we are a sincere seeker when nothing could be further from the truth. And uh, it's a form of self-improvement about managing emotions and de-stressing and reaching for higher states of consciousness. Now, these are all amazing things, but if they are simply, uh, they are simply tools and spiritual en enlightenment is not necessarily obtained from doing a set of spiritual exercises as i was speaking to you last time in part one just fleshing out that idea here in part two when speaking about spiritual materialism and if you go on your facebook and you look at um your timeline or your wall i'm not quite sure what it is i don't really interact with facebook very often now you'll see lots of people on there um i don't you know i don't I'm sure they're sincere people, but what you see is um, a lot of spiritual bypassing going on, a lot of 
spiritual materialism going on and they all happen to be quite attractive young females i'm not quite sure what that's about but never mind you do see a lot of that on facebook and on other social media of course whatever ones you may choose to use and i think all all too commonly these types of activities become um, a form of personal sort of like just satisfaction and comfort and that really it's kind of like people have dropped the ball at this point it's um it's it just becomes a bit of a, a circle jerk really sorry i don't mean to be rude but um yeah i've seen so much of this spiritual materialism going on and it really is it's it's a common trap and it is a, it's a difficulty that many of us face because um once you fall into this way of behaving, of course, it's a, a lot of ego aggrandizement. We really feel good about ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with partaking um, in activities that make us feel good about ourselves. But that really isn't the point. Um, that isn't <laughs> that isn't what the sincere um, seeker is, is all about, because um, the journey up the mountain is often, as I was just saying, is often fraught with great difficulties and, and challenges. And um, I think uh, spiritual materialism is is one of the um, one of the traps, one of the difficulties that we all face. And we've all probably had um, periods, at least some sort of period where of time in our past where we've fallen into that way of behaving. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not here uh, to point the finger at anyone. We're all you know trying the best that we can. So in this part two now, I'm just going to move on to, as I was saying in part one, I'm really excited here. It's a kind of new venture, really, for me at Descending Consciousness is to share uh, an, an audio clip here. And this is from, uh, it's really quite an amazing book um, called um, Butterflies Are Free to Fly by Stephen Davis. And I think this really is um, a definitive book for the spiritual seeker because it brings or it ties everything beautifully together and, and sync, succinctly and I think you're when you read it or um, or you listen to the audio it, it's kind of like one of those sort of texts where you think wow I've been <laughs> I've been waiting all my life for this book and finally it's come up it, it's um it's sort of um it's come into my uh it's come into my field uh, so to speak so just a little bit of a backstory on this um, I recently emailed, I, re I, re I reached out to uh, Stephen Davis uh, on the, uh, on his, uh, through his website. So if you would like to um, download the audio book or read the PDF, it's all free. And the website is called butterfliesfree.com. So that's B-U-T-T-E-R-F-L-I-E-S-F-R-E-E.com. And yeah, I reached out on Stephen's website and he was kind enough to get back to me and uh, agreed to waive any copyright uh, rules, which is absolutely fantastic. So thank you, Stephen, for that. If you're listening to this episode, that's that's really kind of you. So what the clip that's coming up is um, it's episode. Sorry, it's um, it's chapter one from um, Stephen's book. Uh, butterflies are free to fly and um, I won't go into it too much of course because I'll, I'll let St uh, Stephen talk but it's about um, he speaks about the 
movie uh, metaphor, metaphor of the movie and uh, the movie theatre, sorry, I should say. And he also talks about the allegory of Plato's um, cave. So I think um, I think you'll really enjoy um, the clip. So, yeah, please do check out uh, Stephen's website as well. There's loads of great free stuff on there. It's also video clips and um, questions and answers uh, on there as well. And it's, I also think it's great with audio books. You can just download them and um, listen, listen to them at your uh, at your leisure kind of thing. So um, I think I'm going to sign off now. And thank you so much for listening to this two part series. I've been really getting my teeth into what it means to be uh, a spiritual seeker. And I'll leave you now um, with the words of Stephen Davis. Part 1. The Movie Theater Metaphor This is the only radical thinking that you need to do. But it is so radical, it is so difficult, because our tendency is that the world is already out there, independent of my experience. It is not. Quantum physics has been so clear about it. A quote from Dr. Amit Goswami Chapter 1 Plato's Cave Imagine that for your entire life you have been sitting in a chair in a movie theater. The place is dark, like all movie theaters, but you can feel... No. Wait. Before we go there, there's a famous allegory called Plato's Cave, written, of course, by Plato. It's a fictional conversation between Plato's teacher, Socrates, and Plato's brother, Glaucon. And essentially the first part of the allegory goes like this. Socrates asks Glaucon to imagine a cave inhabited by prisoners who have been chained and held immobile since childhood. Not only are their arms and legs held in place, but their heads are also fixed, so all they can see is a wall directly in front of them. Behind the prisoners is a large fire and between the fire and the backs of the prisoners is a raised walkway. As people and animals travel over the walkway between the fire and the backs of the prisoners, the light from the fire casts their shadows on the wall in front of the prisoners. The prisoners can only see the shadows, but they don't know they are shadows. There are also echoes off the wall from the noises produced on the walkway. The prisoners can only hear the echoes, but they don't know they are echoes. Socrates asks Glaucon if it is not reasonable that the prisoners would think the shadows were real things and the echoes were real sounds, not just reflections of reality, since they are all the prisoners have ever heard or seen. Socrates next introduces something new into this scenario. Suppose, Socrates surmises, a prisoner is freed and permitted to stand up and move around. If someone were to show him the actual things that had cast the shadows and caused the echoes, the fire and the people and animals on the walkway, he would not know what they were and not recognize them as the cause of the shadows and sound. He would still believe the shadows on the wall to be more real than what he sees. The allegory goes on. But I want to stop here. If you're interested, you can watch a three-minute animated video at platosallegory.com.
Now, imagine that for your entire life you have been sitting in a chair in a movie theater. The place is dark, like all movie theaters, but you can feel there are restraints, shackles, over your wrists and ankles, making it difficult to move your arms and legs. The back of your chair is high, rising above your head so it is impossible to look behind you. All you can see is the movie screen in front of you and the people sitting next to you in the same condition. In front of you, sweeping around on all sides of the theater as far as you can see, is a gigantic IMAX 3D screen. You sit there watching movie after movie, and it seems as if you're part of the movie itself, fully immersed in it. Like the shadows and echoes in Plato's cave, these movies are all you have ever known. They are, in fact, your only reality, your life. The actors are good and the scripts well written, and you get emotionally involved in these movies, feeling anger, pain, sadness, regret, joy, enthusiasm, antagonism, fear, and a wide range of other emotions depending on the storyline. You have your favorite characters, family members and friends, for example, who show up often, and others you despise and wish would not appear at all in your movies. Some movies are pleasurable to watch, even beautiful at times, happy, poignant, satisfying, enjoyable. Others are dark and ominous, disturbing, painful, producing reactions inside you which aren't very comfortable. You resist watching those and wish you didn't feel what you were feeling. You close your eyes at times, wanting the script to change. But you're content to stay there and watch because you've been told and have come to believe from experience this is the only reality there is, and you have to accept it. The vast majority of people, 95% of the Earth's population, if I had to guess, maybe more, will die sitting in that movie chair. For others, something interesting will happen one day. In a particularly uncomfortable movie, you might scream, No! and forcefully twist your body in the chair. Suddenly, you're aware that you no longer feel the shackles on your wrists and ankles, and you realize you can now move your arms and legs. You use your hands to feel around and discover the shackles had no locks on them, ever, and your panicked movements simply pried them open. All along you had just assumed, believed, you were a prisoner, like a dog who stays clear of an invisible fence. You wonder what to do next. You realize you no longer have to sit there and watch the movies if you don't want to. You could get up, but you don't, not right away. You might lean over to the person next to you and start telling them there are no locks on the shackles, but all you get is a shh in response. The fear of standing up is enormous. The thought of walking away goes against everything you have been taught. Finally, maybe it's curiosity, maybe it's anger, maybe it's just that you can no longer stand to feel what you're feeling. You decide to hell with the fear.
You get up. Nothing happens. No sirens go off. No one comes to make you sit down again. And you begin to think maybe there was nothing ever to be afraid of. So you decide to walk. As you move down the road toward the aisle, saying, Excuse me, excuse me, people look at you in astonishment and wonder and dismay. Some even tell you to sit back down, get out of the way, behave. It's clear they all think you're crazy. But there's something inside of you that feels excited despite the fear and urges you on. Finally, you make it to the aisle, turn, and see that it leads up between the seats, but you can't yet see the rear of the theater. What is clearer now is that the movie screen continues all the way around the building, 360 degrees, and hanging down from the ceiling in the middle of the theater is a large black ball. Out of the ball, very bright light is streaming toward the screen on all sides. You have no idea what it is, or what it means. As you walk up the aisle, you bump into a couple other people going in your direction, and some others returning to their seats. The ones heading back to their seats give you a dirty look, almost hateful, mainly terrified, and someone warns you not to go any further. But you've gone this far, you think, and decide you want to find out what's at the end of the aisle. When you finally make it to the back, you can see the entire design of the circular theater. In one half are the seats from where you came, all facing in one direction, filled with people staring straight ahead at the movie screens. And behind the seats is a large space where people like you are walking around. You also see a door in the middle of the far wall with a sign saying, Do not enter. Extremely dangerous. Since the IMAX 3D screen continues all the way around the structure, there's no way to escape the movies that are playing. In other words, your reality, your life, follows you everywhere. But something's different, even if you can't say what at the moment. The movies haven't changed, but you have. In some way you can feel but don't yet understand. There seem to be little groups of people gathering here and there, others like you who had gotten out of their chairs and made it to the back, discussing something that sounds important. It's all so new, so strange, so difficult to understand, so frightening, so unreal. You think for a minute about going back to your seat, back to the reality you know so well. Then you decide not to to stay a little longer, at least for now. You stop for a moment at the back of one group and ask, What's going on? We're trying to change things, is the answer. What do you mean? you ask. We don't like the movies that are playing. We want different ones, the voice clarifies. While seated in the movie theater, you had never considered the idea of changing the movies. You didn't know it was possible. But now it's an interesting thought, and you admit there were movies you wish you hadn't had to be part of, aspects of your life you would have preferred not to watch and experience. 
you eavesdrop on another group in time to hear a man say, Yes, this is reality, but there's a better place we will all go to when we die, if you just have faith and follow a few simple rules. There's a guru in the next group admonishing his followers, Yes, we can leave this reality, but we must all go together. Have compassion for those left watching the movies. As you continue your trek around the back of the movie theater, you catch bits and pieces of other comments like, This doesn't have to be your reality. You have the power to change it, and I can show you how. And, Love is all there is. And, Quiet your mind. In all the confusion, it finally occurs to you for the first time that you have the choice of what to do next, and it feels exciting as well as scary, because you've just taken the first step towards self-responsibility and self-realization. Once again, let's stop here for a minute. In books two and three of his Enlightenment trilogy, Jed McKenna makes the distinction between a human child and a human adult. This idea is worth playing with, especially in light of our movie theater metaphor. First of all, being a human child or a human adult has virtually no relationship to physical age. The vast majority of the world's population are human children, most of them older than 20. In the words of Jed McKenna, most human beings cease to develop at around the age of 10 or 12. The average 70-year-old is often a 10-year-old with 60 years time in grade. We must learn to see the difference between a human adult and a human child as easily and unmistakably as we see the difference between a 60-year-old and a 6-year-old. Our societies are of, by, and for human children, which explains the self-perpetuating nature of this ghoulish malady, as well as most of the silliness we see in the world. End of quote. Human children are the ones sitting in their chairs in the movie theater. They might complain a lot about the movies they're watching, but they continue to watch without doing anything about it. They're convinced they are kept in their seats by some powerful, external force, and that they are helpless to change anything. In fact, they believe the thing that needs to change is out there, someone or something they have no control over. Even voting is an act of a human child, a statement that change is only possible by changing them. They're convinced the movies they are watching are reality, life as it has to be, and they take no responsibility for their condition. Some human children might actually have discovered their shackles were not locked, and they were free to stand up and walk whenever they wanted. Perhaps a few might have stood, even fewer took a few steps toward the aisle. But the fear soon becomes overwhelming, and back they go to their seats to put their shackles on again comforted by the fact they are in such good and plentiful company. Again, in the words of Jed McKenna, 
Human childhood is the ego-bound state. It is, in actual human children, a healthy and natural state. In human adults, however, it's a hideous affliction. The only way such an affliction could go undetected and unremedied is if everyone were equally afflicted, which is exactly the case. No problem is recognized and no alternative is known, so no solution is sought and no hope for change exists. End of quote. Many people are happy to spend their entire lives as human children, settled into their chairs, immersed in their movies. And I'm not trying to suggest there is anything wrong with that. There isn't. It's exactly how it should be for them, and there is no reason at all to try to change their minds or make them into human adults, as we will discuss later. But I assume you're not one of them, or you wouldn't be listening to this book. You've stood up, made your way to the back of the movie theater, and started to behave like a human adult. This book is for you, about you, not them. In Plato's cave, the human adult is the freed prisoner, who now stands behind the rest, sees the fire and the men walking, casting their shadows on the wall. But, as Socrates points out, the shadows still represent reality, and the fire and men and animals on the walkway remain some kind of unexplained mystery. At a minimum, a human adult has become aware there is something wrong with the life it has been experiencing through the total immersion movies and is not willing to accept that reality at face value anymore. In the classic 1976 movie Network, News anchor Howard Beale expresses what a number of new human adults feel when he rants, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. A human child lives in ignorance, thinking they are awake with their eyes open, when in fact they are sound asleep with their eyes closed. A new human adult has taken the first step of opening their eyes, even though they are still asleep and do not understand what they are now seeing. Just so no one gets confused, human adulthood is not the state of so-called spiritual enlightenment, although it's what most seekers are actually looking for and most gurus are actually selling. We'll talk more about this later as well. Jed McKenna says, The difference between adulthood and enlightenment is that the former is awakening within the dream state and the latter is awakening from it. Shallow early stage adulthood is often mistaken for and sold as spiritual enlightenment, but it's not. It's just the first real glimpse of life. End of quote. Have you ever had a dream in which you wake up and realize it's just a dream but you're actually still dreaming and never really woke up, that waking up in the dream was part of the dream itself? That's what Jed is talking about. A human child is asleep and dreaming, but thinks it's awake and thinks the dreams are real. A human adult is asleep and dreaming and wakes up as part of the dream, but doesn't wake up from the dream itself. 
like a human child, it thinks it's awake, but it's really not. The next step, actually waking up from the dream, is what this book is about. Being a human adult is not a bad way to spend your life, especially if you compare it to human childhood, but it does have its limits. As a human adult, you might be able to figure out how to better cope with the movies coming at you that define your life. There are all kinds of groups in the back of the theater claiming to be able to teach you various methods of filtering or improving or avoiding or denying or processing or dealing with the emotions that arise as a result of your immersion in your reality. We're going to look closely at some of these groups in the next chapter. But becoming a human adult is not the end. It's really just the beginning. I don't know whether it's helpful to remember when you transitioned from a human child to a human adult, getting up from your chair in the movie theater. Stories abound about life-changing car accidents, sudden and unexpected divorces, the loss of a loved one, a near-death experience, drug-induced glimpses of another world, and the like. For me, it was very clear. I was in my second semester at a small southern college, saying I wanted to become a doctor, but actually more interested in philosophy and religion. Two years prior, a friend of mine in high school had recommended a book called There Is a River, The Story of Edgar Casey" by Thomas Chagrew. One day during a semester break in college, I suddenly remembered it while browsing through a bookstore in New York City. Back at school, I cut classes for a week and read and reread that book. It blew my mind. Until then, I had been asleep, sound asleep. My childhood and teenage years were spent being normal, like everyone else. Well, Maybe my family was slightly more dysfunctional than most, but still, I was seated in my chair, watching the movies, experiencing all the discomfort, wishing things out there would change, and trying to find as much pleasure as I could to compensate for the pain. There is a river, ended with about thirty pages of philosophy from what are called Casey's Life Readings. It talked about the origin and destiny of humanity. All souls were created in the beginning and are finding their way back to whence they came. About reincarnation and astrology. About universal laws. As ye judge others, so shall ye be judged. About meditation and extrasensory perception. About body, mind, and spirit. Spirit is the life. Mind is the builder, physical is the result. About Atlantis and earth changes, and about the unknown life of Jesus, whom Casey called our elder brother. My life changed overnight, in the same way Casey predicted one day northern Europe would change as in the twinkling of an eye. My fraternity brothers didn't know what to do with me. For one thing, I stopped eating pork, which had been my favorite meal, and I would literally live for Wednesdays when pork chops were served for lunch at the frat house. 
I also spent the next summer working for Casey's son, Hugh Lin, at the Association for Research and Enlightenment in Virginia Beach. I stayed in school another year after reading the book, although I stopped going to classes. As one cleaning woman once told me, Don't worry about it, none. What they're teaching you here ain't right anyway. I was now a human adult, although I would need time to adjust to my new surroundings. The consequences of getting up and walking to the back of the movie theater seemed overwhelming for me. My mother, of course, was against it. So was my girlfriend. I would be wasting a lot of money already spent on an education and maybe never get a diploma. I would most certainly never become a doctor. I had no idea of what I would do next, no prospects on the horizon. I would be leaving all my friends and a life that contained some moments of joy and pleasure for what? And perhaps most critically at the time, I would lose my college deferment and be subject to the draft, most likely ending up as a soldier in Vietnam, a war I opposed from the beginning. In the end, however, my discontent and discomfort with sitting in my chair in the movie theater won out over the fear of leaving it. 